Amen. You can be seated. And kids, you can start making your way to your classes. And so as the kids make their way, uh, just an announcement, update. Parents, next week will be a uh, family service. So next Sunday, we'll have all the kids. They'll stay in here with us. And we do that uh, throughout the year for a couple reasons. Uh, one, we want to start habituating them into the rhythm of worship. So we want them to experience uh, the full uh, flow of worship. And then another reason we do it to give our volunteers a break and uh, and so since next next Sunday is the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we're going to have family service, and we're also going to wrap up our series in Ecclesiastes next Sunday, as we, it's the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, so we're going to wrap that up. But now we're going to return to the passage we briefly looked at last week in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And, you know, one of the amazing things about living in Orlando is uh, no matter what you're into, whether it's comic books or stamps or puppy dogs or there's anything, there is a conference for you, and often it's here. You don't even have to travel. And so you can, you can join with thousands of other people who share your same unique passion for, you know, 1950s coins or whatever it is. And uh, recently I met someone, and they, when they found out I was a pastor, uh, they told me about a conference they thought I might be interested in. They said, did you know that uh, every year there's a, uh, the National Atheist Convention is here in Orlando. I said, well, I didn't know that. And they said, well, you might love going. And uh, I said, I went last year and it was so interesting. Would you like to come? I said, well, when is it? And I said, it's over the Easter weekend. And uh, I thought, well, of course it is. And uh, actually, that's a hard weekend for me to take off. Kind of a lot going on. So I might not be able to join you um, that weekend, but I'd love to hear about it. I'm really intrigued. He said, well, it's so interesting because one of the reasons uh, he said that he went is because he just wanted to hear, like, hear stories. Like, why would you... um, why would you come to something like this? What's going on? And uh, so it's met so many interesting people. And one thing he told me was so interesting because uh, this person actually was a Christian and we were talking about uh, these different things. He said, it was just so interesting to me that almost every person I met had a basic story arc. Whereas almost everyone had an experience where something happened in their life where um, somebody they loved became sick they lost something like a job or something that they valued and treasured. And they had this moment where they cried out to God, like, God, if you're there, help me, help me do this, do do this for me. And he didn't. And then almost every kind of story arc, he said, it was interesting. I thought I was going to go and hear all types of like arguments about, you know, creation versus evolutionism, but almost none of that was there. It was all, almost all stories of deep, disappointment. And then this is the result. And one of the things that Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is an incredible gift. Like, it'd be a fabulous for uh, the preacher, the teacher of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. He would be a phenomenal speaker at the Atheist National Convention. Because one of the things he's going to help you do is actually face the reality. How do you deal with life when there's the midst of the difficulties? But another thing he would do is he'd actually challenge you and say, well, that's not the only experience you've ever had. How do you deal not only with the the days of darkness, how do you deal with those moments when this unexplainable light comes crashing through? Maybe think of one of my good friends when we lived in Louisville. 
Uh, he would have very vocally been, uh, would have loved to go to the National Atheist Convention. And we had often very interesting talks about, uh, we worked together and uh, had all types of interesting conversations about life and uh, had the good uh, kind of experience of both of our first, our wives were pregnant with our first child at the same time. So it was just kind of fun to walk through uh, that experience together. And uh, I remember after his little daughter was born and going to see him in the hospital. So interesting because here was this, this proud, joyful father who was just beaming with all of this gratitude. And I remember he looked at me and he's just, it's, he's like, it's just so amazing. Like when I hold her, it's, it's amazing. The universe is so wonderful. And it then just struck me in that moment, he actually doesn't have anybody to thank. The universe, the impersonal force that's driven by nothing but time and chance, you're saying it's a person. There's nobody. Who do you actually thank in that moment when the light comes crashing through? And Ecclesiastes 9 is an incredible gift to us because it says, all right, you're actually going to be in life where you have to deal with the reality of difficulties and disappointments. They're unavoidable. But you also are given the gift of these moments where this light of hope can come crashing through and you have to face and learn the lesson from those. So what I want us to see is we look at Ecclesiastes 9, and we set this up last week, but what I want us to see in chapter 9, he's going to push us to, to force, uh, he's going to force us to face the reality that we live in between a rock and a hard place. We're kind of stuck. But even in that, there's these moments where the light of hope can come crashing through. And if we can find a way to, to move our life underneath the rays of hope, we can find peace. We can find joy. We can find hope. So let's turn to Ecclesiastes 9. And remember, the point of the book um, is broken up into two sections. First section is to help you deal with, all right, what are you searching for in life? All of your energy, your effort, what are you trying to achieve and accomplish? And then the second half, it deals with how, what can you know? What can you be sure about? And the second half is really a gift to us because it wants to help you embrace just the ambiguities of life. And if we really do try to have it all or know it all or do it all or achieve it all or be happy forever or have all the answers, if we want a life that we have completely figured out and we're never left scratching our heads, uh, the second half of Ecclesiastes says you're in for a tough road. But if you want to face these realities and own them, there's a way that you can navigate them with confidence, peace, poise, and joy. And one of the points of this chapter is that often life's not fair. It's not tidy. It's not easily explainable that you're caught in between a rock and a hard place. But in that place, you can find deep, profound joy. So let's first set the scene and look at the rock, remind ourselves of the rock. Chapter 9, 1 through 6. It says, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, but whether it is love or hate, man does not know. That's a refrain through the whole second half. Man, there's things we just don't know. We don't know. Both are before him, and it's the, sa it's the same for all since the same event happens. So what he's going to say is you have to fake the same event is going to happen to you no matter, and then he's about to contrast two types of people, basically religious people and irreligious people. Um, he says it happens to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, those who sacrifice and those who don't, those who worship, those who don't, those who are good and those who are sinners. It happens 
happens to everybody. So if you think you can kind of manipulate religion so that you somehow get an end where you don't ever, you won't ever experience death, then you're, you're fooling yourself. It's coming to everybody. And it says, in the hearts of the children of man, verse three, they're full of evil and madness. But then there's this ray of hope because he says, all right, we all are, we all have to face that rock of reality that death is coming to us all. But there's this little ray of hope in verse four. He says, but he who is joined to the living has hope. That's a very important word. So he's saying is that there's somehow, there has to be a way that you can be joined, united, connected to the living. And if you can, then you have hope. See, he says it's, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. As long as you're alive, there's hope. And he says, is there any way, like we know that this, this battery of our life is going to run out, but is there any permanent supply of life that we can be connected to where we actually don't have to worry about about the battery running out? Is there some way we could be connected to the, to the living? That's, it, that's the question. Is that possible? But that's one kind of ray. It's, it's, he, wants to, he wants you to begin to ask the questions. Like, hmm. So that's, that's, the, that's the rock. But then he sets up this hard place in verse 11. And starting verse 11 says, all right, we all have to face this reality. But the hard place we're in is in the midst of our just daily lived experience, there's going to be so many things that just don't seem fair. Look, he says, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For here's the refrain, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. He says there's so many things in life that it just doesn't seem to work out the way you thought it was, was going to. It doesn't seem fair. It's like, you know, the race should go to the swift, the battle to the strong, but it's not always that way. And then look, he gives this story in verse 13. This is the, the next kind of ray of light that comes crashing in. Because he says, all right, you want to think about life not being fair or people not receiving what they deserve. I'll tell you something I've seen. Verse 13. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. And it seemed great to me. There was this little city with a few men in it. And a great king came up against it and besieged, besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in this town, was found in it, a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. So this is an amazing story about this little town is being besieged by this mighty king and this great army. And then somehow there was this poor, wise man who was able, by his wisdom, to actually bring deliverance to the whole city. So you think, all right, the whole city is going to be celebrate. They're going to, uh, <coughs> his name will go down in history. He'll be made the king and everybody will love him. But then look what happened in 15. Yet no one remembered him. No one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words were not heard or his words were forgotten. So this is crazy. He showed that his wisdom is better than strength and his wisdom actually delivered them, but then people, they've forgotten him. They don't listen to his words. They don't pay him any attention. And then tell me if this sounds familiar. It says, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. It says, so often actually what wins the day in any social context is the fool who shouts the loudest. 
no matter what arena it is. It says the, the wise are ignored. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. It's often either those who shout the loudest or who have the biggest guns that win. And he's saying, it's not off, it's the wise, they get forgotten. And then, so what he's doing, he said, there's this kind of ray of hope that comes crashing in because he says, I've heard the story of a, a wise man who was poor but wise, and he brought deliverance to the city. But then nobody remembered him. Nobody paid him attention. He was ignored. And of course, it ought to make you think. Can you think of any other stories like that? Can you think of any other stories where there's a poor man, but he's wise, and then he brings salvation? He brings deliverance to the people, and yet they don't pay any attention to his words. You know, this is a ray of light, and I think one of the things we'll see is in Ecclesiastes, he doesn't really know. He just sees kind of these three beams of light, but I think one of the beauties that we can see, because we know things that he doesn't know, is that those aren't three separate beams of light. They actually all are one source of light that you're just seeing in three different ways. Because I would say, actually, the true story of the ultimate wise man who brought salvation is the story of the gospel. And the, ultimately, the ultimate place where we can find that and see that is, is at the cross, you know, the great shock of the New Testament is that it's actually at the cross where the wisdom of God is put on full display. You know, we also know of a story of a poor man who, if foxes have holes and birds have nests, he had nowhere to lay his head. And yet, by his wisdom, he brought deliverance to the many. You know, when we just look at the cross, it seems incomprehensible to us. From a human perspective, it just seems like it's a total miscarriage of justice. But yet, in it, it's the ultimate display of divine wisdom. And Paul had to wrestle with this. The, the early church, they had to wrestle with this because he said to the Greeks, this looks foolish. And to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. But what you have in the cross is the great union of two things that seem uh, impossible, seem contradictory. And often, that's what wisdom does. It can reconcile things that you thought couldn't be reconcilable. And there it is. It's the love of God and the justice of God both come together. See, it's on the cross. He's able to pardon those who believe in Christ, even though they've sinned against him and deserve condemnation. And without that love demonstrated, we would be separated from him. But also on the cross, he displays his justice and satisfies his perfect and holy justice. And if it wasn't for the cross, then God wouldn't be true to himself. And so I think what this ray of light is pointing us to is the ultimate wise man, who's Christ, who brings about the deliverance and salvation for us. And I think the wisdom, the master stroke of wisdom is that he was both fully human, so he could enter into on the cross in our place, and then he was both fully God, which means he could bear and pay the penalty, and then death couldn't hold him, and he could rise up conquer it, victorious over it. And that's why that little ray of hope in verse four actually connects to him because he now is the living one that if we repent of our sins and are joined to him by faith, we actually can be connected to a life that will never fall under death's tyranny again because it's victorious over it. We can actually be connected and joined to the living one and all of our hope is found there. And so what we see is actually everything we need is found in him. And then everything we can enjoy here is ultimately 
pointing to him. And then I think that actually unlocks the, the, the beauty and the power of that center section in verse 7 through 10 that's telling us this is how you live in the light of, of the rock of death, the hard place of the uncertainty of life. You can actually live in the middle, middle here with peace and poise and hope. And so look at verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments be always white, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might." For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. One of the things he's going to do is he's going to highlight three areas of your life. And if you think about it, these probably are the three most important areas that determine, you know, your, your success, whether you uh, enjoy life or don't. He's going to focus on kind of your, I, I've got to hear your, your food, your family, your focus, or your, your feasting, or your relationships, the people you celebrate with, your, your feasting, your community, and then your family, and then your calling, your vocation, your work, the things, the things you do. And you actually walk through those, and the key line there, the key ray of hope is in verse 7. See, you actually, if you know the ultimate poor and wise man who's brought deliverance and salvation for you, and you're connected to the one who's still alive and death no longer can tyrannize you, you actually can live in the light of his smile. So you already have his approval and living in the light of that, you then can enter into all of these things. There's a world of difference between trying to experience and do these things to gain his approval than to do these things and experience them as a result of already having it. And so you can kind of walk through each of these uh, things. You know, the first one is go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved of what you do. Let your garment be always white and let not oil be lacking on your head. You know, this is such a beautiful verse on how you just can enter into and enjoy the common, simple, everyday celebrations, feastings. You know, one of the things about Ecclesiastes is, this shouldn't surprise me, but there's actually seven calls to joy, calls to celebrate throughout Ecclesiastes, calls to feast. And what's interesting, this is number six, and then the seventh one is at the very end, last part of 11 going into 12. And what's interesting, all the way up until this point, they've been pretty general. Like, enjoy your food. Just enjoy life, enjoy your work. But here he starts to get specific. And one of the beautiful things about it, each one of these elements are all symbolic. You know, if you kind of read this couple verses with the whole Bible in your mind, you can see there's all types of symbols that point to uh, our salvation. But the first is just go. You know, the first command is go. Seize the day. Enjoy, enjoy your life. Go. And uh, you know, once we live in the light of his smile, you can just go. You can live. And so maybe part of your life is you can uh, be overly paralyzed by things and won't actually enter in and go. And one of the great gifts of the gospel is it just can get you going, get you moving. I know one of, my, uh, one of the things I love is I love doing research, love studying. Like when I was doing my PhD, I spent an inordinate amount of time doing research and both my advisor and wife, because she was helping pay for it. 
at some point said, all right, it's time to go. Enough research. You got to start like committing and writing enough. It's time to go. And there's a certain things in life where this is a gift. Go, seize the day. And maybe there's some things in your life you need to repent of not actually going. But then notice the next thing. Notice all the beautiful elements here. Eat your bread, drink your wine, and then notice the garments be white and oil on your head. It's festive language. It's language that we use to talk about the symbolism of salvation. The bread, you eat it. The wine, you drink. Those are communion language. That's come from the Passover celebration and then the Lord's Supper and then the, the clothing. I was really tempted. I don't know if you've been keeping up with our podcast that Cynthia and I are doing, but uh, I'm tempted. We're, we're going to take time off until the new year, but would love to do a, the symbolic kind of biblical theology of each of these things like bread and then wine and then your garments and then oil because there's such symbolic beauty in the way what they mean and what they represent. I mean, just think about the garments, your garments being white, your clothing. You know, it's white garments are counter to two things, both mourning and then self-righteousness. You know, when you mourn, what in the Bible, what do they do? They put on sackcloth and they tear their clothes and pour on ashes. And this is the, the, the opposite of that. You put on the white uh, festive clothing and put on oil for celebration. And then there's also the image of our, when we try and earn our salvation, like Isaiah talks about your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That's like filthy garments. You're wearing garments that have been soiled in. And then you're trying to present yourself as if you have it all together, but that's what they're like in God's sight. But he gives you these new, white, beautiful clothing. And this is marriage feast terminology. This is celebration terminology. He's actually calling you to feast, to celebrate. You know, it was fascinating. In the Jewish calendar, there were four festivals scattered throughout the year. There was Passover, there was Pentecost, and then there was the, the, the first fruits, the, ta the tabernacles. And these are week-long celebrations where you're called to celebrate. But you know what the fourth one was? It's the Sabbath. Every week, the Sabbath. The Sabbath is to be a time of festival celebration. One of the goals, like our worship actually should be a journey into joy every single week where we fellowship and celebrate with the Lord. And that's part of how we've tried to structure it. So at least you can have some of the symbolism of the great movements of entering into his God, God's presence and then going up into his presence and then feasting at his word and table every single week. But this is a feast. It's a call to celebrate. But then notice the next one, verse 9, the, the call of family. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Now, the most important interpretive question when you're reading Ecclesiastes is how do you make sense of that word vain? And it's very intentionally used in an ambiguous way. So you say, all right, does it, sometimes it means vain like it's a moral critique, like you're so shallow, you're so vain. Other times it just means vain like breath. Here today, gone tomorrow. And it's so helpful. So every time you see that word in Ecclesiastes, you have to ask yourself, all right, is this a critique of your life? Is it saying your life is shallow and it's meaningless, it's not worth anything? Or is it just fleeting, passing? It goes quickly. And I think that's what he means, he means here. But notice it's so interesting. Notice what he says. Enjoy life with your wife. All the days of your vain life is going to be short. It's here today, gone tomorrow. But then notice what he says, because this is your portion and your toil. This is your toil. 
And I think one of the things that's kind of shocking to us is actually enjoyment and joy is not the spontaneous response to pleasant circumstances. It's actually something we have to work for. This is your toil. And all of you who've been married more than about four days, you know that if you're going to experience true joy, it only comes on the other side of toil. It's going to take work. It's going to take selfless sacrifice on both people's parts. It actually takes work. One of our phrases that Cynthia uses in our house is fight for delight. Delight something you actually have to fight for. And we'll joke whenever we do weddings, we'll kind of joke because even talk about how even in our cultural context, the way we talk about love means we don't know anything about it. Because we even use phrases like you fall into love. We just fell into love. And I'll tease, and you've heard this joke before, you, you know the kind of things you fall into. Holes. You fall into ditches. You don't fall into love. You have to fight into it. It's something that takes work, and that's what he's setting up here. Enjoy your life. And I think it's uh, enjoy the life with your wife. And I think it's fascinating. In this world, do you know how you chose your wife or husband? You didn't. It was chosen for you. And yet, which actually, as I think about my four kids, that's not such a bad idea. <laughs> might need some cultural adjustments. But it was chosen for you. And, it's, and so that means, in essence, this is something that can be uh, created. It's just not the, the momentary response of uh, electrons bouncing around in your brain. It's something you can, you can create, you fight for. But what's interesting, so obviously the application for those of you who are married are, is pretty simple. Um, like if you're too busy to enjoy time with your family, you're just too busy. And if you're not enjoying time with your family, then it could be because you're, um, you're either too disconnected or you're just using them. But then another thing, all right, say you're single. You say, all right, that's great for you married folks. What about us single folks? Like, how do you think the Apostle Paul, how would Paul apply this to his life? And I think if he was here, we could call him up and say, all right, Paul, how would, how would you enjoy life with your with the wife whom you love all the days of your short life. Uh, does this just not apply to you? I think you would say, no, actually, I've given my whole life to this. Because let me tell you about a mystery. This mystery is profound, but the relation between husband and wife actually isn't about husband and wife. It's actually ultimately about Christ and his church. Christ is the husband, the church is the bride, and I have dedicated my whole life to serving his bride. So there's power there no matter where you are in life. Enjoy life. And then the last one is just your focus. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it <clears throat> with all of your might. And flowing out, what are you actually going to do? Your work. What are you going to commit your life to? You know, it's interesting in this world, how did you choose your husband and your wife? You didn't. In this world, how did you choose your vocation, your job? You didn't. It was given to you. Uh, you inherited it. But then here's the thing, like you still, like Solomon's career advice would be, don't worry so much about getting down the path to some end that you want to be, what's placed in front of you now, and then do it. Whatever's, whatever's before you, do it with all your might. And that's such a freeing way to live. You don't actually have to plan or orchestrate uh, your entire life. You can step down from being the CEO of your life in the universe. 
Somebody else can be in control of that. You just focus on what's put before you. You can do it. And this is, or do it with all your might. And so it's an incredible picture because life is not about meaning that you create on your own that you can, uh, you know, you have to find your partner, have your kids, have this job, but it's actually realizing that I actually don't create those, I receive all of those. And all of those have been uh, given to me as gifts of God, and that's how I can really experience full joy. So the idea is if you can take those three things and you can push them under the light of the hope that comes from the living one who will never die, the great, the ultimate wise man who brings deliverance to the city, and the ones whose work is already approved in God's sight, those three rays of hope, if we can push those three things in our life in that light, then we can find joy, peace, hope, and celebration. Now, let's kind of, as we kind of wrap up, I want you to think, all right, so each of those things, so three kind of rays of light, and those are three gifts that God gives us, three normal, everyday gifts. Um, and I think these three great gifts, in essence, they're hints. They're appetizers. They're just pointing us towards something greater that's going to come. And that's how we live with hope in the in-between. Here's a quote this, uh, painted so beautifully in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle. Uh, the unicorn, everybody's they finally made it to the true Narnia. The last battle's over. Uh, victory has come, and they've come into the, the area that's heaven. And it's, it says, uh, it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we love that old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little bit like this one. And then he says, Bree hee hee, I won't try and make the, <laughs> the unicorn name sound. Come everyone, come in, come further up, come in. And what you can see is, as I was thinking about this, all right, so, so Solomon lays out, all right, there's this put before you as this gift, and it's the gift of good food, good relationships with people, all of the, the normal, everything, everyday things in life that make it worth living. Um, what does a Christian response of receiving those with thankful joy look like in comparison to kind of a worldly response where you try and grasp and gorge yourself on those things? And uh, so here's kind of an image. So think about this image. Um, this year, so here's kind of a parable for how to live the Christian life well. And uh, it's, so think about kids trick-or-treating. So this year when we went around trick-or-treating, I noticed uh, a lot of the homes in our neighborhood just set out candy. And it's like, all right, take one, you know, kind of thing. So a lot of, a lot of candy was just set out. And uh, it was really intriguing because you notice there's generally two responses to the candy that's set out. You know, you have, all right, some kids just go up and they just take one and they'll kind of maybe be analytical and make sure it's not going to be like milk duds or something. I got to get the Snickers or Reese's peanut butter cup, the actual real candy. And so they'll just kind of take one. Or, I mean, there'll be the kids who just, you know, I got one. And then, all right, so think about, like, compare and contrast. What, what might be the difference? Or actually, how can you not be that kid who's constantly grasping and trying to gorge yourself on all these things but can receive them as gift? 
And I wonder if maybe the difference is, like, what if you sat down with, like, your children and said, all right, we're gonna, we want you to enter into the joy of trick-or-treating, and we love that you can dress up and you can pretend to be someone you're not and something you're not, and we can go around and we're going to be together and we're going to celebrate, but you actually don't have to grasp 45 pieces of candy. Because when we get home, I promise you, we're going to have a family celebration that what we have there is going to be 10,000 times better than that Tootsie Roll or that Hershey's bar. And maybe you can tell them, do you actually know how much chocolate is in the Hershey's bar? Here's a little trivia. What percentage of the Hershey's bar is actual chocolate? Zero. Zero percent. And you say, all right, so you actually don't have to gorge yourself on that thing that's 0% real. It's just an illusion. You can wait till you get home and we will have a feast. And actually, this is exactly what the gospel tells to us. We don't have to be the kind of people who just grasp and gorge and try and get as much of these things as we can. We can be free. See, if you're not a Christian, I think you often abandon yourselves to eating, to drinking, to all of these things like those desperate kids because you think this is all that there is in life. But if you are... If you were in Christ and if you know him and your hope is found on him, you know that all these things are not all that there is in life. Uh, this, is not all, all, um, this is not all that there is. This actually is just a little foretaste to all that there will be. And so it can give you a profound sense of rest. So let's thank him and praise him for it and ask him to help us as we enter into a season where we will be experiencing these things this season to help us to enjoy them with good and thankful hearts. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of the gospel and we ask that you help us. We give you praise for the, the poor but wise man who through his wisdom brought salvation and deliverance to a whole city. Help us not to be the kind of people who ignore him, who aren't grateful for that, who don't come to him for it. Lord, we praise you that in him we actually can be connected to the living one who has conquered and defeated death so it no longer can tyrannize us, but we can be united to him by faith. So help us and then we praise you that in him, you've already approved of the things we do. We already have been justified in your sight, so we don't have to prove ourselves, and we can receive all of these things as gifts. So we pray that you help us, uh, help us this week to be grateful, help us to be thankful. Lord, I pray for everyone who's going to be traveling this week and is traveling. Uh, keep them safe. Keep them uh, uh, joyful. Keep them humble. Give us proper perspective on both friends, family, food, work, and help us to receive all of these things as what they are, your good gifts. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.